Last week, the coronavirus drove a massive market sell-off. The S&P 500 saw its worst week since the global financial crisis, and the yield curve inverted for the third time since October of 2019. Welcome to The Bid. I'm your host, Jack Aldridge. Today, Mike Pyle, BlackRock's global chief investment strategist, walks us through the global impact of the coronavirus and why it's changed our market view for the year. Mike, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. To put it in very technical terms, last week was a bad week for markets. Walk us through what happened and why. My basic assessment as to what occurred was up until the very tail end of the week before last, markets were effectively discounting coronavirus as a China-specific public health challenge that had global economic repercussions, but fundamentally something that was contained to China and the region and then propagating out as an economic matter. And I think what we saw at the very tail end of the week before last and then certainly throughout last week was a kind of growing reassessment of that kind of underlying assumption from market participants as it appeared as if the kind of dimensions of the public health challenge were spilling over out of China into other parts of the world, including increasingly Europe and other developed markets. And I think that that reassessment from China public health challenge to something with regional and global economic implications to global public health Mm -hmm. challenge with even larger global economic implications potentially is really what drove that reassessment and the very extreme market moves we saw. So markets have been at all-time highs up until very recently, and there's been debate as to whether we've been due or even overdue for a market correction or an instance in which markets fall 10% or more from a recent high. That obviously happened last week with markets falling into a correction quicker than they ever had in history. Do you think that's just the coronavirus driving this, or are there other market factors at play? So my assessment is there was no particular reason why we had to have a market sort of event like what we had last week, independent of the coronavirus. This continues to be an economy where the underlying health is quite strong, no particular alarm bells out there ringing in terms of recession risk absent the coronavirus. And so to my eyes, yes, can there be kind of air pockets and what have you that markets hit from time to time, of course, but the underlying kind of momentum of the economy was quite strong, and so it didn't feel like this was due in some important way. But, you know, I think to my eyes, kind of the real emergence of this different phase of the coronavirus challenge sort of really was just that kind of core driver across really the course of last week. You might add a little bit, you know, I think we've been saying for some time that the U.S. election presents a headwind to markets in 2020, in particular U.S. markets, principally in light of just the really divergent potential outcomes on the table in November between the two parties. You know, I think maybe we saw that step in a little bit last week because I think markets are beginning to pay more attention to what's happening around the Democratic primary election. But I don't want to overstate that. To me, just the overwhelming driver last week was this new phase of the coronavirus challenge. And you mentioned how we were thinking about the markets beforehand, our base case being generally that global growth would edge higher this year. How have recent events changed that, and how has this coronavirus development affected that view? I think our view coming into the year, exactly as you say, was growth was going to edge higher, led by some of the more cyclical aspects of the global economy, you know, trade, capex, led by you know, places like the emerging markets and Japan, 
I think that led us to not just have a relatively constructive attitude towards risk assets, both equity and credit, but also with particularity have greater emphasis on some of the more cyclical exposures in the global asset mix. And so I think what the past week has shown is that is not really an environment that's operative any longer. And the coronavirus and its impact has really changed that. And so we wanted to offer a reassessed view of what the global outlook looks like. And, you know, I think it looks like a couple of things. One, the coronavirus challenge is very clearly now globally a quite material economic event. We think that economic growth is likely to take a step down in level terms across the course of 2020. So this isn't a world of growth edging up. It's a world of kind of growth taking Mm -hmm. a downshift. That said, our base case, to kind of talk constructively for a moment, is still that this is a temporary shock of uncertain duration, but temporary. And when we get to the far side of this shock, we should see the global economy reaccelerate quite rapidly and financial markets follow behind. Secondly, it continues to be the case that we don't see as our base case the U.S. or global economy falling into a recession. We see the expansion continuing in our base case. That may be a little bit different for Europe, for Japan, some of these places that were already a little bit in the doldrums. But the underlying momentum in the U.S. was quite robust entering this challenge, and we think that that still matters. Mm. Third, I think we're going to see a pretty meaningful policy response from central banks and fiscal policymakers globally you know, around liquidity support, around monetary easing, around fiscal easing. We're beginning to see that conversation come together. I think there are some risks as well. I don't want to belabor my answer here, but I do think it's probably worth talking through some risks too. And what are those risks? One, the base case that I articulated was one of a real slowdown, but ultimately a trajectory that because of policy intervention, because of the underlying momentum in the economy because of that ultimately we think temporary nature of the shock and the reacceleration on the other side of it keeps the U.S. and the globe out of a recession. But I think it's important to highlight some of the key risks that could mean there's a downside here outside that base case. You know, the first is the one I just point to. We're really focused on what is the duration of the shock going to be? And I think the best evidence early on is going to be is China successful at bringing its economy back online mm-hmm. without having the secondary outbreaks of a sufficient scale that caused them to have mm-hmm. to pause or reverse? The second is just how big is the economic shock itself going to be in the major developed markets? Obviously seeing significant outbreak in Italy, other places in Europe now, early reports of growing cases in the U.S., How significant does that end up being? And importantly, what is the magnitude of the public health response necessary to bring the outbreak under control? That will go a long way towards determining how kind of deep the impact is. And then third, I think, goes to the policy response. How effective are agencies of government in terms of actually effectuating a policy response? Then how effective is it? You know, I think reasons for both optimism, but also reasons for a bit of pause on both those sides. On the optimistic side, I think we are going to see real activism Mm -hmm. from policymakers around the globe. 
Central bankers are pointing in the direction of significant new easing. It looks as if there should be real liquidity support put in place for businesses and other actors in the economy that are strained because of the abrupt fall off in cash flows or income, what have you. And then importantly, also going to see real changes in fiscal policy. We've already seen that from China, seen it from Hong Kong. I think we'll hear announcements from other countries like Japan, Korea, Italy, even Germany. Wouldn't surprise me if we ultimately saw something from the United States. The degree of policy response and the degree of its effectiveness, particularly around this question of making sure that companies especially small and medium companies and firms that face this abrupt fall off in income from the economic shock have the tools available to get through the crisis. I mean, these are oftentimes very healthy businesses that have just kind of run into a once-in-a-century storm, and we need to make sure that kind of fundamentally healthy businesses aren't taken offline permanently because of that. And that, to us, is the way that this turns into something quite a bit more pernicious if these kind of liquidity and cash flow challenges that could arise could be abated with effective policy, aren't effectively abated with policy. That's a world where you can see, I think, a much more vicious cycle take hold. We've been talking about how this has moved recently and rapidly from being a local phenomenon to now one of global proportions. It originated in China, the world's second largest economy. How are you thinking about the growth story in China and how what happened there might flow through to the rest of the world? I think it's wise to look at China for a slightly different reason than was the case a couple of weeks ago. The reason to look at China a couple of weeks ago was principally because this was the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak because we were mapping the way It flowed through from a very abrupt economic slowdown in China through on both the supply and the demand sides to the global economy. And I think we heard a fair amount about this from a number of sources, but one illustrative one was Apple, which gave revised guidance a couple weeks ago and said effectively, you know, what we're seeing in China is going to pretty meaningfully impact our Q1 results. It's going to matter both in terms of the supply side, our ability to get product done Mm. because so many of our supply chains are deeply embedded within China. And also it's mattering on the demand side, the demand for our product, because China is such a significant global market for us, is also taking a big hit. You see that manifest in a bunch of different ways, including things like corporate earnings. I think the conversation today is still about that, clearly, but it's also about can we take any lessons from what the shape of the economic shock is going to look like in other countries that have to confront significant coronavirus outbreaks by virtue of what we've seen in China. And there I'd say a couple of things. You know, One, it seems as if one way in which economic activity is really impacted is by the public health measures that are taken to confront mm-hmm. an outbreak. And while I think it is extremely unlikely that we would see measures of the kind taken in China able to be taken in other parts of the world. Nonetheless, that basic sort of insight prevails that beyond the outbreak itself, the measures taken to combat it slow economic activity. The other thing that I think is worth keeping an eye on is now that China looks to be, and the WHO kind of made this consensus view known last week, now that it has really changed the trajectory of the outbreak in China, how are they going to go about restarting their economy? And how successful are they going to be at that? I mean, I think we have the view that they should be able to 
sort of reaccelerate kind of relatively quickly with the big risk that as they do so, are there secondary or tertiary outbreaks that mean that they have to slow back down mm-hmm. and put restrictions back in place? So that, to our eyes, is one of the key things we're looking at. As China restarts, are they successful at doing it, or do they have to put the brakes on again? And to that point, I'm struck by how much uncertainty there is in this coronavirus outbreak in terms of the path and trajectory of the disease in terms of the world really having not seen something like this before in such a globalized era, as you just think about how much we don't know and how uncertain this coming period will be, how do you think about markets? How do you think about investing? This is obviously the most important question for our investors financially. And the advice that we're giving, this is a moment to be cautious, but this is not a moment to panic. It's a moment to stay invested for the long term and to see that through to your financial goals. This is a moment to kind of be back at your home base in terms of the benchmarks that you have in your portfolios around equities, credit, sort of other risk assets. You know, as I said, we had articulated a view coming into the year around being pro-risk and being more cyclically oriented. That world isn't the world we're in anymore. And so what we've done in our own portfolios is kind of bring those risks back to benchmark weight to reflect the changed world. Like I said, we think that on the backside of the shock, there's going to be a pretty significant reacceleration in economic activity and financial market activity. And the dislocations that we are seeing now are ultimately going to provide investors with pretty significant opportunity. And so what we're spending the next period of days, weeks, as we go through this shock is being in regular contact with our investors, shaping that debate here within the firm and identifying the best opportunities for our clients to come out the other side of this all the stronger. But again, I think the important message is this is a time to be somewhat cautious and back at the home base, but it's also an important time to be really focused on staying invested, staying in markets, and recognizing that our goals are long-term, not the next 30 or 60 days. Absolutely. So you talked about thinking about this over a long-time horizon and there being some opportunities. Could you describe some of those opportunities that you're seeing? Yeah. Like I said, our overweight into risk assets was really around some of the more cyclical exposures out there, emerging markets, Japan, high yield, what have you. We've pulled back a few of those, both Japan and emerging markets in particular on the equity side, and are looking for some more resilient equity market exposures. And it's here, things like the minimum volatility factor exposure, the quality factor exposure, companies that have really high quality balance sheets, cash flows that look set to be resilient against a storm. Those are places that tend to have really good runs of performance in difficult market environments. And lastly, I think it's important to say that even with rally we've seen, U.S. Treasuries continue to perform this really core ballast role in portfolios. And standing by the allocations that you have right now is an important thing to do while these challenges are working their way through the system. Fantastic. Well, Mike, you've given us tons to think about here, and I think we would love to be talking with you more as these developments continue and as we here at BlackRock continue to keep our eyes on this. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me.
This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management U.K. Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N 2DL, telephone plus 44020, 7743-3000. Registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230-523, BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.